Good afternoon, everybody. Eddie Webb. We are here at the New Media Lab at Mesa Community College. And today we are very pleased to have our very own Maricopa County Community College Chancellor, Dr. Stephen Gonzalez. Dr. Gonzalez, Chancellor, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Professor Webb. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we, we, I've looked, I've seen your calendar, and so I, we really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, normally, there would be students doing all this production, but at least we, we get to talk with you and, yeah. and learn about what's going on. So you've been in higher ed here a little over 20 years, or what's your background in education, higher education? So I started off um, as a high school math teacher at the high school that I graduated from. So it's always a really interesting experience to go back and be a teacher side by side with teachers that you had while you're in high school and you get to hang out in the infamous uh, teacher's lounge and you get to know these teachers in a very different way and that's uh, enlightening. Being from a small town, I I tease um, that and also being Hispanic, we had a very large family so I was related to half the town. I'm exaggerating just a little bit when I say that but nevertheless, it afforded me an opportunity to have um, many relatives as students in the, in the two years that I taught there at the high school, including uh, my brother. Yeah, I was this calculus uh, teacher while he was in high school. So parent-teacher conferences were always fun with him. <laughs> what town? What town did you grow up in? Coolidge. Coolidge, Arizona. Yeah. Coolidge, Arizona is yeah. about 45 miles south of here. Uh, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm very familiar with this area, having grown up in Coolidge. Uh, Fiesta Mall was the place to be uh-huh. growing up in the in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, if you could get over to Tower Records and buy your new tapes, man, it was yeah. a great day. So it sounds like um, education was something very valued in your family and early on in your life. Oh, absolutely. Um, it was not if I went to college, but always, you know, when you go to college. And my dad had, had vowed to work three jobs if he had to, to give us that opportunity. My dad was the, the local mailman in town. Everybody knew him and he knew everybody. And my mom um, was a paraprofessional in our local school district for 20 plus years. So they were both very supportive of the educational endeavor. And, and um, I was the first in my family to go to college to complete a bachelor's degree, to complete a master's, and to complete a doctorate. And since then, I've got a um, younger brother and sister that have done the same uh, a brother that's about to wrap up a master's degree this, this fall, the sister that is, has her master's degree. They're all educators, by the way. And I've got uh, lots of younger cousins that are now college-educated. So our family dynamic has really changed. Um, I'm third generation into this country. And the generations before me, including my parents, were migrant workers that traveled with crops, like many of the stories of Hispanics in the southwestern region of the United States. So I stand on the shoulders of of the giants of my great-grandparents that always valued education, always valued opportunity. And I felt like if I squandered that, that um, it would just be a complete disrespect for their days of toiling under the sun. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. I know... uh... I know there are a lot of us when we found out that uh, that you were appointed our chancellor were just couldn't have been happier to see. Uh, I know my family, we were come from the fields, mm-hmm. working in the fields, Indian boarding schools and up and down the coast in uh, California from Bakersfield mm-hmm. up to Butte County. 
And uh, when I was a young guy, everybody would come to my grandmother's home and, and then head out into the fields. And yeah. I was so proud of that, you know. And then later, everybody worked at the cannery, you know. And, yep. and uh, education, you know, was very important to our family as well. For yeah. people of my generation, they, like you say, you know, your parents or whatever would do anything to make sure that you got a chance to uh, go to college. Sure. You know, I mean, finishing high school was uh, was a great achievement Absolutely. Back, back then. I'm a bit older than you. But anyway, I just want to say we're real proud of you, and I know a lot of people from the community are real proud of your work. And I'm always inspired when I see you talk of your level of confidence and your no-nonsense uh, style of talking with people. And I, I really appreciate that, and I know, I know folks do. Uh, you've inherited a couple of big things. One of the biggest uh, community college districts in the world, definitely in the United States, <laughs> and then this little thing called COVID. Right. And uh, I imagine it's a lot to have learned to uh, work uh, with folks and keep us a world-class institution. How you doing? How you doing with the COVID stuff? Well, I'm holding up okay. I think like many of us, um, we know people that have been affected by it. We've even had family members. Um, I've, I've had family members, parents, aunts and uncles, and my own son that has contracted the virus since it's been around. But it has disrupted every facet of our lives. And I think if the Maricopa District was the only system in a country that was dealing with it, it might, it might make it even more difficult to understand and rationalize. But the fact that it's not only impacted Maricopa, but it's, it's, it's impacted every college in the country and every other organization, every personal aspect of our lives. So we're sort of all in this together. So there isn't time to sit around and, you know, oh, woe is me and I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Why is this happening? We haven't had time to sit around and ask those questions of ourselves. Um, in fact, they, they weren't going to be very productive anyways. So right. fortunately, um, the team that I inherited at Maricopa is a group of college presidents and vice chancellors and leadership throughout the district and an amazing faculty that immediately rolled up their sleeves and, and said, you know what, we're we're in this, there's there's no real end in sight. Although many people thought by now we would be okay, um, they got to work and uh, maintaining academic continuity, which is what we do, that's our craft, uh, was of extreme importance. And so uh, I'd like to think that we delivered on that, we made some tough decisions, and we stood on those decisions, they were well informed, we took a collaborative approach. Not everybody's happy, but to move 22,000, almost 22,000 classes to an online environment in just under two to three weeks was amazing. Yeah. And I share that with other college leaders and they just can't even fathom, um, you know, if, if they're a president of a smaller institution, maybe they've only got a thousand courses that they had to worry about. But even then, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. I think sometimes people don't realize how big we are as a district right. with 10 campuses and well over a quarter million students and all the energy it, it takes. So we'd ask some folks around the, to, to give us some uh, questions for you today. And this is a nice segue because one of the first questions is, what's your sense of morale among people as we're, we're making these transitions and people are not able to come to the campus, you know, and working at home and keeping things going? What's your sense of the morale? Well, you know, coming into this position... And you know, having serving as a college president, 
I was in tune with what was going on in our district and the challenges that we're having, you know, especially at the at the leadership level of the organization. So morale was something that certainly needed to be improved. And as a leader, you've got to assess what is it about morale. And there's different ways that you can do that. You can have conversations the way that we're having. I can just simply ask you, you know, Dr. Webb, what's what's going on? What what can you share with me? What are your thoughts about our organization? What are our challenges and opportunities? One of the first things that I did in coming in as interim chancellor was hold listening sessions throughout the district, which got interrupted by COVID. I was able to go to all colleges with the exception of Rio. I think that's the only place I didn't get to. And that included uh, the district office as well in that. Um, and I was beginning to learn a lot about our system and learning what affected our morale. Now, I think most people would say that our stagnant salaries, cost of living adjustments is certainly one of those things that affects morale. But I think as a leader, in addition to valuing employees, you can demonstrate value through monetary um, means, but there are other things that we can do as an organization to value employees. And I really believe that when employees, regardless of where they work in the institution, have an opportunity to affect the organization, to participate, to engage, to understand the work that they do and how it contributes to the overall cause. I mean, if you're an IT guy, if you're one of our custodians, if you're one of our landscapers, you've got to know how the work that you do ultimately ties into the goals of our organization. And I, I think that there's been an absence of that. And I've worked really hard at Gateway to, to help our employees understand that um, and, and invite them into the, the circle of conversation to make decisions about our organization that can have a tremendously positive impact on morale. Beautiful. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is what people just, humans in general, want to be validated and they want to feel their worth and they want to feel that they're contributing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and making the resources uh, available for people to excel and to achieve their potential, uh, I think is critical to morale. It's nice to, nice to hear that style. Thank you. I think, over here, I've been here a little, I think 20 or 21 years, I can't remember. But um, I think because we've had so much turnover, uh, interim mm -hmm. stuff, and you build these relationships with people for two, three years, and then they're gone, or, you know, that gets, that wears people out. Sure. Right? Because it's like you have to constantly start over, right? And you got to, that's something I'd like to see is some stability, which leads to our, our, our second question here. And you actually brought this up at a, go uh, a governing board meeting mm -hmm. uh, that you'd like to see us find uh, some permanent college presidents around the, the campus. What, is this one of the reasons uh, that motivated you to say that or start thinking about that is to create a sense of stability? Absolutely. You know, this has been something that's been on my mind from the very beginning, but as I became interim chancellor and thought that I might only be an interim chancellor until July, excuse me, June 30th of 2020, I didn't think there would be much opportunity to, to do that. I thought that might be the job of the next uh, permanent chancellor. And um, as it became evident that they were not going to fill the position by July 1st of this year, I began to weigh pretty heavily. And so there's a time in everything. Obviously, I would have loved to have started this process in August or September with a little more runway yeah. uh, to do a full search. But um, we're end of October, beginning of November, and we're going to go for it, and it's to bring stability to our system. Um, we've got to start at the highest level of the organization. 
feeling the chancellor's position is not up to me, but it is up to me to, to move forward on some of these other key roles. So we'll move forward on the college presidents, we'll move forward on the chief operating officer and the CEO of our foundation. Mm. Um, once those are in place, uh, that might help calm some of the waters at that level and allow perhaps interims to go back to some of the roles that they have been filling in for the past year. The other part of that um, to Dr. Webb is that it, if we don't fill those positions this year and we actually wait to for a, a permanent chancellor to start this role and begin that process, it's likely that Mesa, for example, wouldn't see a permanent president for one and a half to two years. And, you know, you've already have been with an interim president who's been doing a wonderful job, by the way, yeah. um, you know, in this position for a year, almost a year at this point. And that's hard on an organization. And it's hard to move. Um, we have, we've been fortunate to have some interims who've been doing a, a great job. Um, I'm serving as an interim, but I recognize the fact that there's just some people that will just take the wait and see approach to things. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. I get it. But we're not going to be able to move our organization forward. Meanwhile, everybody else will continue to surpass us in the work that we do. Yeah. I, I think the in for the most part, the interim folks you've had are, are good. That's not the problem. The problem is the leaving part. Yeah. Right? Because we, we let it go on for too long. Right. And so, you know, we build these relationships and we build these agreements and, and then the, all of a sudden, you know, somebody shuffles the deck. And you can only do that so many times. You right. Know? So I agree. And I think a lot of people agree what you're doing and pushing forward to that is going to be a very positive, have positive outcome mm -hmm. on the uh, the colleges and the morale of those, you know, who, who uh, dedicate their lives to uh, education, which, by the way, leads us right into our next question. This notion that the district office itself is becoming the 11th college and that resources seem to get bottlenecked down there or programs that are out in the college sort of get absorbed and brought down to the district with committees and uh, different departments and functions at the district. And people are wondering about how that disrupts resources out in the college. And is there sort of this uh, centralizing notion of bringing programs to the district that tend to just become bureaucratic type operations rather than teaching, you know, where students are not involved with this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these sorts of activities? Yeah, that's a great question. So let me first say that we've got a lot of folks at the district office and many that I'm getting to know better that have the same type of passion and energy for student success that you and I have being on college campuses and they want to be engaged. Um, this notion of the district becoming an 11th college, I think you would find in systems such as ours, that always seems to be what a, a college um, campus will say about its district office. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been a college president in the Maricopa system for seven and a half years, and um, I've got my list of uh, issues that I take with our district office. Um, at a presidential level, sometimes it's a lack of authority um, to bust through that bureaucracy that you talk about, and um, but yet being held accountable for things that I've got zero control over. And so my fight has always been, um, I'm okay with you holding me accountable, 
to my job description, but my ability to actually do it needs to line up with that. That's and if right. I fall short, then handle me. Right. If not, don't don't blame me for any shortfalls when yeah. you're controlling a process at that level. I've looked at data recently, and uh, over the last seven or eight years, while some colleges have declined in enrollment and declined in budget, as a result of that, district offices increased in budget. So That's right. one of the things that I plan to do, we're actually in the, in the throes of, of, a budget, of a new budgeting process for the upcoming fiscal year that is calling for an overall 3% reduction in our budget to account for the 15% enrollment loss that we had for the fall. And right now we're tracking to 15 to 20% for the spring. That do those dollars have got to come from somewhere. Well, in the past, the district has never had to suffer that loss uh, when there's been an enrollment loss across the system. Well, that's going to change as long as I remain in the role. In fact, I think we should take a greater lead in taking the cuts that are necessary so that we ensure we take less resources from our colleges who need them most because it, you're, you're absolutely right. The serving of our students is taking place on our classrooms in our, in our classrooms by professors or in the student services where they're providing assistance to get financial aid, counseling, learning, su academic support. Uh, that's where we need to shore up our help. Absolutely. And I think you're going to have a whole lot of people agree with you. You know, it's because it, it is hard when you're out here with the students. That's where the footsie is. Right? Mm -hmm. And you're trying to build programs and you're and all of a sudden, you know, your resources are gone. But then, you know, we have more, we see more and more bureaucracy, more and more programs popping up downtown. Right. It can be very frustrating, but I'm glad, I'm glad to hear your perspective. And, uh, you know, we, in our, we've had three or four podcasts here where we talk about the FTSE model or enrollment up or enrollment down, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, I always ask up from what down from what, right. you know, like if we didn't have the money, the treasure that we have from the state, you couldn't run a business the way we react to this, right? So whether there's 19,000 students here or 24,000 students, we still have to operate like a first-class college, right? Right. So this idea of every, I guess, 32 weeks, if enrollment's up or down, we're going to take money away or give you money, it's just a bad business model. Right. Right. I mean, I, I'm pushing for five-year budgets I hear I hear talk of two. There's talk of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. but that's two. You know, two yeah. years in education is like a blink of the eye. Right. Right. Especially if you're trying to build stuff. So I think we have to be smarter about how we invest because we can't cut our way into success. Mm -hmm. At some point, we have to invest our way Correct. into a success. And for me, that's about building programs that draw you know a destination for students. You right. Know? And and here at the lab, we do a lot of faculty profile we've we've started a press where we want to get students excited about working with particular faculty and programs i think the district does a really good job in in some ways about marketing but i'd like to see colleges get a little more aggressive sure about that i fought uh, muay thai for 20 years and my jaw is popping in and out can you hear that <laughs> clicking going on it's been a while this thing was pushing on it. I've had, I've been, had my jaw knocked out of place so many times. So, yes, I think this is really good news for people to hear uh, that you're being thoughtful about this. Do you think your math background benefits you for analytics in, um, in determining the uh, problem solving? I would say that it 
that it does. Yeah. You know, and what I always loved about math is that there truly more than one way to solve a problem and being able to take that problem and dissect it to figure out what the other possible solutions and avenues are to get in there is the fun part of solving a problem for me. And I had to do that many, many times through my bachelor's and master's degree. In this job, there's not always the right answer. There isn't a solutions manual, but we've got serious problems to solve. I think the other part that, that comes into play in my experience that I apply on a regular basis. So I was an athlete. I, uh, I wrestled. I ran track. So you're, especially in wrestling, as you just described your experience with Muay Thai, it, you're, it's mano y mano with someone. And at some point, there's no one else to blame but yourself for your shortcoming and what just occurred. Yeah. And if you don't believe it, somebody probably recorded it, and you can see it for yourself. Yeah. And um, so I took that experience, and I became a wrestling coach. And I find that um, through my experience in coaching, you have to develop the ability to constantly work with someone, identify their strengths, and identify there are areas for growth. And that's exactly what leadership is. And I think that's what I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly trying to do here at work. And uh, whether people realize it or not, that's, that's, that's things that I think about. And I also understand that um, in building a team, it's not going to help me at all to have a group of people around me that are going to constantly say yes and be afraid to say no. So I've got to encourage the dialogue and the honest conversation. So that's that's a key strategy too to getting to the heart of the problem. Yeah, you know, I've been down. I I when we were doing the new media lab tour before uh, you know all this shut down. One of the last colleges I went to was Gateway, mm. and uh, people were real excited about you down there, man. Yeah, thank you. And uh, people, the the morale it was it was infectious yeah. when I was there. And then every time I would say, "Well, we started out in this room that looked like had been an old county jail room," you know, <laughs> I, I I'm I'm only five eleven, but I felt like the ceiling was pushing me down. You yeah. Know? Uh, and and I said, man, you know, I don't think we can do this here. And they were, they were finally like, all right, let's show them. And they took me around this place. And as a result, we redesigned our whole interior here because the way you guys have it. I'm like, why were you guys holding out on me? And they were <laughs> laughing. They're like, well, you know. But, uh, yeah, there's some good stuff happening down there. And you can you can feel how your leadership has trickled down into the morale of people, you know, because they feel – I just had a feeling that they were very excited about working there. Mm-hmm. Kind of a small, one of our smaller colleges, right. too. Yeah, I mean, that seemed like I talked to faculty and staff and some, you know, all within an hour, just sort of touring around. You kind of get to meet everybody. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very important. I think uh, one of our other questions here, and I think it ties into that, is cultural intelligence throughout mm-hmm. the district. Coming from a Hispanic background, you know, how do you see culture, right? Like, how have we evolved into a place that it embraces diversity instead of being afraid of it? Well, I think if we understand um, the purpose of our work, when we discuss culture, when we discuss diversity, equity, and, and inclusion, sometimes on the front end of that conversation, people make assignment to what that means. And for some, they might they may believe that it's just going to be a concentrated focus on our black students and black employees, or it's just going to be a concentrated focus on getting more uh, faculty of color. I mean, whatever. I, I've heard it. I've heard all of the the reasons as to why there is skepticism in that work. But the fact of the matter is, is that we 
We exist to provide education to students and an opportunity for them to, to become something different than what they, they are when they come to us. There's been nothing that's been proven more times over that the great social equalizer to be education. I mean, even people that win a lottery, half of those people are dead broke within yeah. a few years. With education, that's something that you take with you, you keep with you, and if you use it um, appropriately, it's going to open many doors. And so if we have the understanding that it's that our work in diversity, equity, and inclusion is one more tool to help our employees to be successful and to help our students to be successful, I think it would allow the guard to be let down perhaps a little mm. and, and really begin to appreciate and understand that work. We all come from, you know, different cultures. And even when I, when I sit across someone who's, who's clearly Hispanic and, and has grown up in the same regions, even in the same town, it is not safe for me to make assumptions that we are one and the same mm -hmm. just because of the color of our skin, background, last names, whatever. That individual has a culture that was developed through their family and the family values. I mean, culture is something that is, it's a history of family that is handed down from one generation to the next. I didn't grow up in that person's home, so it's incumbent upon me to get to understand this person's personal culture. And what, so it, it really doesn't matter what color they are. If I don't take the time to do that as an employee, as a leader, or as a professor, then I may not be as successful. I just might not. You know, I, I, I don't want to say that you'll never be successful or that yeah. you would be more, that I would make a promise that you'd be more successful. But I would say that the research says that you should be more successful if you have a, a good understanding of, of cultural intelligence and the impact that it plays in our, in our classrooms when students are learning. The first uh, professor of color that I had that was actually uh, Hispanic was a math professor in my graduate program. He was actually from Mexico City. And so it was nice to see someone that looked like me in a classroom. And for the first time, I felt like I didn't have to uh, prove my worth there. And here I am in a master's program right. for mathematics, as right. if I still need to prove something to somebody, right? right? right. But the fact that we were both uh, of Mexican descent, we had different cultures. He grew up in Mexico City. I grew up in Coolidge, Arizona. Right. We, we, there wasn't much that we could relate on. So he still had a job to learn about my culture, and I had a job to learn about his culture. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Right. We're talking about thoughtfulness. Uh, we're here in the New Media Lab with our chancellor, Dr. Stephen Gonzalez. I want to thank you guys for listening in. And we're going to be right back for the second half of our conversation. Royalty-free audio, Grinoline Dreams by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find more of his work at incompetech.com. The Maricopa County Community College District, MCCCD, is an EEO-AA institution and an equal opportunity employer of protected veterans and individuals with disabilities. All qualified applicants will receive consideration for employment without regard to race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, 
gender identity, age, or national origin. A lack of English language skills will not be a barrier to admission and participation in the career and technical education programs of the district. The Maricopa County Community College District does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, disability, or age in its programs or activities. For Title IX 504 concerns, call the following number to reach the appointed coordinator, 480-731-8499. For additional information, as well as the listing of all coordinators within the Maricopa College System, please visit maricopa.edu slash non-discrimination.